As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's Justin Briley here, Apologetics and Theology Editor for Premier Unbelievable. And this is the programme where we put you in touch with contemporary thinkers, theologians and evangelists, helping you to share your faith with confidence. We're currently profiling Glenn Scrivener of Speak Life on the show at the moment. He was one of our keynote speakers at our Unbelievable conference just a few weeks ago. And he's looking at themes from his new book, The Air We Breathe, how the Christian revolution shaped the values the modern West holds dear. We're looking at the scientific revolution on the show today, but to celebrate the launch of both the show and our new ministry website, we're running a competition on social media. You can be in with the chance to win one of five signed copies of The Air We Breathe by Glenn. All you need to do is post a link to the Unapologetic podcast to Twitter, to Instagram, to Facebook. Use the hashtag Premier Unbelievable. That's hashtag Premier Unbelievable. Or you can retweet or share our own post about the competition. And then we'll be able to identify all the people who have done that and draw you out of a big hat. Five signed copies of The Air We Breathe up for grabs if you can do that. If you want more from the show, go to our brand new website, premierunbelievable.com, for the newsletter, the ebook, bonus content, and more when you register. And of course, loads of great content to explore there. And finally, as I've been asking you the last couple of weeks, do review, rate and review this show. If you're a new listener to Unapologetic, it really helps to get the word out, especially in these early weeks of the podcast. Uh, it helps uh, platforms like Apple Podcasts to share it much more widely if you're able to rate and review us. So we would love you to do that for now. Thanks for being with us on the show. And here's our conversation today. Welcome back to the show. We're talking with Glenn Scrivener at the moment uh, about the ways in which Christianity birthed all kinds of revolutions in our values and also in the scientific realm. That's what we're going to be looking at today. It's all based off Glenn's book, uh, recently released, The Air We Breathe. Um, So, Glenn, tell us a little bit about the science chapter, um, because this is a bit different to the, the values, the, you know, compassion, equality, which we've already spoken about. Um, you, you make the what will often be a controversial claim that science itself is to some extent a product of the Christian worldview. Um, this has been obviously for many people, especially the atheists, uh, well-known characters like Dawkins and others. You know, the, 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 the drum that they've been beating for, for many years now is that science and atheism go together. Uh, you know, it was only thanks to getting rid of religious superstition and dogmatism with the Enlightenment that finally science and rationalism was able to spread its wings and give us the world we've got today so you're telling a bit of a different story though 
in this um and and one that i think is often not heard by many people so do you take take us to to your alternative story to the to the <laughs> dawkins sort of story of of science and so on yeah well i think so often the popular secular story about the origins of science is creationist and it's creationist to the core um it goes something like this. There were long ages of darkness. Have you heard of the phrase the Dark Ages? Historians don't refer to the medieval period as the Dark Ages anymore. But um, this, so the story go, goes, there was long ages of darkness. Everything was void and empty without form. And then Copernicus put the sun in the center of the solar system and said, let there be light. And there was light. And almost in six days, um, Copernicus kind of births the whole sort of scientific method from nothing. It's a really miraculous story. And we even talk today about the Copernican revolution. And I think we, we love the story of a revolution. We love, we love the story of all was darkness and then bang, light. We love the story of one person standing between the ages and bravely bringing us from the, the, the old into the new. And so we, we, love, we love the story of Copernicus bringing about a revolution. The, the trouble is, it's just not true. Um, scientifically and philosophically, there is a much better case to be made that there was a scientific evolution, not a scientific revolution. So actually, when it comes to the origins of science, I'm far more of an evolutionist, a theistic evolutionist. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I am far more believing that over long periods of time, there was the evolution of different concepts, and there were certain steps taken forward. It was great that Copernicus put the sun at the center of the solar system. Pretty much everything else in his system was wrong, <laughs> and it was wrong because he assumed circular orbits um, around the sun. He assumed circular orbits because he was just following Aristotle and the Greek minds just thought, well, the circle is the most perfect shape. So surely orbits happen like in, in circles. And so actually um, Copernicus had to invent a whole number of perorations, a whole number of planets sort of doing tiny little mini circles in their circular orbits to actually make the maths work and map onto observable reality. Um, it took until Kepler came along, and Kepler was another astronomer who was breaking things away from Hellenistic science, Greek science. And he, he was like, why, why do orbits have to be circular again? Uh, why don't we just observe what they actually do? And then he started to, to think, oh, no, there are elliptical orbits. And then his system started to make much better sense than even Copernicus's system made sense. And then Newton comes along and he's like, well, why, why, do, the, why do we have orbits at all? Why, why don't these planets just lasso off into space? Oh, there's a thing called gravity. And so, but trace that system back before Copernicus. And you also had these incremental developments. And and you had people like William of Ockham. You know, I'll, I'll have lots of atheist people, you know, say to me, Ockham's razor. And they'll, they will, you know, quote to me things that William of Ockham um, said. Well, who was William of Ockham? He was a, a natural philosopher from the medieval period. He was at Oxford University, and which is another Christian invention. And he was part of this system of breaking things away from the Hellenistic, the, the Greek assumptions um, that, that 
people had taken for granted for so long. And you go back to, you know, there are, there are just so many incremental stages in the development of science, which is why I say I'm an evolutionist as regards the development of the scientific method. And I think that accords with the historical facts. And my big problem is nowadays we seem to have this creationist belief that all was darkness. And then God said, let there be enlightenment. And there was enlightenment. Um, I don't think that's how history works. And I don't think it, it explains why all of a sudden Christians in Christian universities investigating nature according to Christian principles, why they were the ones who actually managed to make these breakthroughs. I, I think it, um, it doesn't accord with the facts. And, uh, and, and I think in the academy, everything that I'm just saying is, is pretty standard, right? I think it's, it's only really at the popular level that the, the, the kind of the let there be light creationism um, has held sway. Talk a little bit about the pioneers of the scientific revolution, because again, I, I mean, a lot of people will just assume, oh, you know, they were all godless, atheist, skeptics. Not the case. Um, I mean, the vast majority were, were actually quite devout Christians. Um, do you want to give us some examples of, of who these people were and, and to what extent their faith kind of played into the, the science that they eventually did? It didn't, in a sense, right. you know, it wasn't that they had to be christians to be able to do science but there was a reason why it was christians who led the scientific revolution yeah i do think you have to believe quite christian-ish things about the way the universe operates in order to do science i'll, I'll kind of get to that but you know copernicus I, I i quote from some of the great scientists from the scientific revolution or evolution as it should be uh copernicus said to know the mighty works of god to comprehend the wonderful workings of his laws surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the most high or galileo i get into the galileo story in the book don't worry i don't i don't dodge um that issue but uh, galileo said the glory and greatness of almighty god are marvelously discerned in all his works uh, Newton said this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. And then Kepler, I quote, because it's, this is actually key to the development of science. He says, geometry is unique and eternal, a reflection of the mind of God. That men are able to participate in it is one of the reasons why man is an image of God. And I think Kepler is pointing to something um, Absolutely fundamental. In order to do science, you need to have laws up above. You need to have minds in here that can comprehend the laws up above. And you need to have a world out there that is regular and able to be observed. And there's a, a triangulation going on between the regularity of laws up above, minds that are able to comprehend those laws, and a world that is open to empirical analysis. Einstein called it, it's the miracle of comprehensibility. He said, the eternal mystery of the cosmos is that it is comprehensible. Um, why should three pounds of gray matter that exist on this like insignificant planet um, in the Milky Way, why should this three pounds of gray matter have any purchase on the mysteries of the cosmos? Well, Kepler is saying, okay, we have... a." a God of order who has made a world of order, and this is key, he has placed humanity in a unique position 
Um, Genesis chapter 1 says we are blessed from above in order to have dominion on that which is below. And the, the triangulation is taught on page 1 of the Bible. Therefore, no wonder people who are immersing themselves in that story start to believe in the regularity of laws, the regularity of a world out there, and the ability of puny human brains to to be able to plumb some of the mysteries of the cosmos. That, that, that is actually quite a leap of faith. To do science is to take a certain leap of faith. And of course Christians are taking that leap of faith because they believe in that kind of world and that kind of God. I like the way C.S. Lewis summarized it. He said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator, which, which I think is a very right. helpful summary of, of kind of where this idea that there, you could go out and discover the laws of nature kind of came from. It, it wasn't something that was assumed necessarily in a pre-Christian age. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Obviously, the, the story that a lot of people hear about Christianity and science is the story of I don't know, Gal- Galileo being persecuted by the church because he was bravely trying to, you know, make this case for heliocentrism and the um and and that you know the church constantly stood against these things because they said well that's not the, what the bible says you know obviously the earth is at the center and the sun moves around it do, do those stories sort of stand against your view that that you know christianity kind of was the crucible in which the scientific revolution began if, if there are these examples where the church seemed to be standing against it yeah i, I I think the uh, the church did uh, did not cover itself in glory in the Galileo affair at all. I mean, neither did he. Um, but I, I I think the Pope was far more um, to blame. But it was, in the words of um, David Bentley Hart, uh, a clash between two men of titanic ego. Um, and essentially, Galileo um, published a, a dialogue about. Um, whether the sun was at the center of the of, of the universe, center of the solar system, or not, and in his um, in his sort of dialogue between two people, one of them was called Simplicio. He was a simpleton, <laughs> and and Galileo put the words of the Pope onto the lips of this simpleton, who was of course trounced by you know the the, the believer in in heliocentrism, um, and he was put on trial and. Um, he what was he he was found um guilty of oh i forget he was vehemently suspect of heresy and he lived out the rest of his days under under house arrest that and the the um the intervention of the church in the scientific method um is a violation of this this principle of free inquiry which ought to be at the heart of scientific inquiry now what should also be said at the same time as, as saying that was wrong, what should also be said is that the greatest patron of astronomy, both before the Galileo affair and afterwards, had always been the church. Also, what the church did was basically pick a side in the geocentrism versus heliocentrism um, debate. And they went with the majority of scientists of the day in, in terms of saying oh, we, we believe in the geocentric model. Interestingly, both sides in the Galileo debate actually deferred to Augustine, who said that um, 
the scriptures cannot be contradicting the assured find, findings of reason. It, that, that is simply, God, God would not lie to us. And so both of them went back to a much earlier Christian theologian, Augustine, to say that the, the findings of, of science cannot contradict the words of God because God does not lie to us. Um, so it's a complex thing. But, I, I mean, it's interesting that even um, Alex O'Connor um, on, on his channel, um, uh, Cosmic Skeptic, he goes into the Galileo affair and says almost precisely what I say in, in this book. Um, and with so many of these objections um, that, that happen, the objections that we raise are according to standards that have been given to us by, by Christianity in the first place. So was it, I think it was wrong by the church's own lights for them to have treated Galileo the way that they treated Galileo. But, but all of this can obscure the fact that actually Galileo and everybody else involved in the scientific project at this point, they are Christians at Christian universities carrying out their science for Christian reasons. And to let that story obscure the, the headline story, I, th- I think, is to um, have an imbalance in your perspective. So if, you know, a, a typical Christian might meet a skeptic today and, and what they encounter is someone essentially saying, like, science and faith can't coexist. Uh, you can't be a Christian and the scientist. I mean, what would be the first thing you'd point people to? What, where, where would you sort of start people if they're going to have that kind of, if that's the particular objection that they're meeting with their friends, neighbours and colleagues? I would just press into why do you think science works? Because it's, kind of, it's kind of cool that science works. And I, I would have up my sleeve the, the Einstein quote that um, the, the eternal mystery of the cosmos is that it is comprehensible. The comprehensibility of the universe is a miracle, he called it. Um, and I would, just, I would just encourage people to press into, isn't it kind of weird that, okay, if, if it's simply true that my mind boils down to my brain chemistry, which just boils down to quarks and leptons fizzing here in this tiny corner of the cosmos, and yet I am able to some degree to comprehend the whole, isn't that, like, I, th- I think the very practice of science points to a triangulation of the heavens and the earth and humanity that ironically sounds exactly like Genesis chapter 1. And isn't it ironic, because of- often it's Genesis chapter 1 that is, uh, like, evidenced as the reason why science and faith can never be friends. And absolutely, there have been clashes over the over the issue of evolution. But I think if you can press deeper than that, what does it say about us? What does it say about the world to think that there are regularities in the cosmos that humanity are uniquely privy to? And what kind of faith does it take to continue to step out into the world and to presume that what you're going to find is a greater more symphonic order to the cosmos rather than like no nobody nobody thinks in that at some stage we'll do all the equations and we'll get to the end of all things and we'll just find oh it's utterly meaningless the scientific enterprise is 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 there a grand unified theory of everything what are we what are we moving towards and as you press into that idea um, you're starting to see how very theological the scientific enterprise really is. There, there's a couple of quotes I love from people like Francis Bacon, who was the 
founder of the scientific method in many ways, a devout believer himself. Um, and he said, a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. <laughs> and there was a sort of equivalent phrase. I think it's attributed to someone like um, Warner Heisenberg, uh, where he said the first gulp from the glass of the natural sciences may turn a man into an atheist but at the bottom he will find god waiting for him and there's there's something about that idea that when we actually push up to the metaphysical boundaries we suddenly realize that that yeah science kind of can't explain itself in in an odd way yes. do you know what i mean right then? oh absolutely and th- and that that is why the creationist account of science just erupting from nothing is so implausible um, because you you absolutely have to believe certain things about the universe and certain things about humanity in order to get this thing going. It doesn't come from nowhere. And, and you know, the, I mean, the Greeks believed in a regular universe, but they just didn't believe that humanity were in, in, in such a position. And they didn't believe that the universe was open to empirical observation in, in the way that Christians started to. And the, and, and the Chinese did some wonderful astronomy. But they didn't have a belief that the cosmos, the entire cosmos, was ordered by a kind of a, a single divine wisdom. Um, and, and so that, that sort of held them back in their scientific enterprise. You've got to believe really certain specific things in order to be a scientist and to believe in science. And, so, and, and then, not only do you have to believe those things, isn't it amazing that for the, for the last 500 years, those beliefs about the, the nature of the world have been confirmed such that every single scientific progression that we've made is a confirmation of the hypothesis that Einstein's miracle holds. Okay, <laughs> like if if Einstein's miracle is the universe is comprehensible, um, well, that's the hypothesis. Every single piece of scientific advance is testing that hypothesis. That, that we are able to comprehend the, the whole. And with every, single confirma- with every single scientific advance, we're confirming the hypothesis. We're confirming that we're living in a miracle. So press, press more into science. Don't, don't flee from science. Press further into it because I think it's confirming that we live in just this kind of Christian kind of a world. Another fascinating conversation with you today, Glenn. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to another one next time. But for now, thanks for being with us and, and see you next thanks, time. Justin. Hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Come back again at the same time next week for another. And do remember to rate and review us on your podcast provider. Helps to get the word out in the early weeks of the launch of Unapologetic. And if you can share the Unapologetic podcast on your social media using the hashtag Premier Unbelievable, you'll also be in with that chance to win one of five signed copies of Glenn's book, The Air We Breathe. Thanks for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.